All right. So, title of our lesson this morning is Our Father's Love and Privilege in Christ. Our Father's Love and Privilege in Christ. And we're going to be covering two chapters from the book, um, Councils and Thoughts. Okay. Chapters eight and nine of that book on Councils and Thoughts by Thomas More. Uh, so here what we see on the screen is the title that he has for that chapter, chapter 8, concerning the Father's indication of those sinners who are the objects of his love and salvation. Now, it always helps to remind the subtitle that he's given to his book, which is about you know encouragement for the spiritual life for believers. So there's an encouragement here. Uh, we have a father in God who he has chosen us to be the peculiar objects of his love. Now, some of us that may not be as um, read in some of the older writings, when you I use the word peculiar, which is what he used in the book, um, again, written in the late, mid to late 19th century, um, peculiar it just simply means we are a, a distinguished people. We are a chosen people. We are God's distinct people. And yes, sometimes we are peculiar. <laughs> so, uh, but what, ev what better evidence really do we need to understand of the love the father has for us in the great salvation that he's provided for us in his son? What furthermore evidence do we need? Now, there is so much spiritual blessing and encouragement, and that's what this author does throughout many chapters of this book, is, is breaking down these, these vast statements. You know, what a blessing it is to have a such a great salvation in Christ that's been provided for us. But, you know, as we walk through this in different ways throughout the series, we're going to break that down and just see how the, the, the many different facets that are to see and behold and the way the, the light comes in and, and it spreads it out in different ways of the truth that we have in, this, in these doctrines. We have need for no better evidence for God's love than what he's provided in his son. So God indicates who are the elect by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the sinner. Now, that's obviously something God can see, and we cannot. We only see the fruit or lack of fruit. Um, and even then, though, we're not the best of fruit inspectors, are we? We aren't. Um, there are many that, um, shepherds in wolves' clothing. There are many believers in wolves' clothing. Um, and so we, we can't always see this. So it's that regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that's in the heart of the sinner that the Spirit does that distinguishes us. Now, this regenerating power, it's we're being awakened in this process of what the Spirit is doing to our, our great need for Jesus. I can remember when a period of my life when things were starting to, you know, it's different for all of us. But I can just remember being awakened to truths that I had heard for so long, but I 
they had never taken root. Um, I'm sure you have, you may have similar stories. You may not. You know, there's a true blessing growing up in the church, especially a church where the doctrines of Scripture are fearfully taught, and um, it's hard to remember exactly when you came come to believe. That's a true blessing from what you've been um, preserved from experiencing in the in the in the world. But we have been awakened by that regenerating power of the Spirit. Our hearts have been made anew. And we get to bask in our Father's love, our Heavenly Father's love. Um, There is a profound truth in Scripture that He gave us. He gave us the elect to Jesus to be His possession, to be His bride. This is part of what we see in the father's indication of those sinners who are the objects of his love. One of those indications is he gave us to Jesus. So in to eternity past in the covenant of redemption, this has been God's plan. Um, just a brief recap on the, the covenant of redemption. It's a covenant of works. Okay. And the parties to this covenant were the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was a covenant of works that must be fulfilled. There are a couple of key texts here. Um, one, Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, before the ages began. So this is one of the texts that we would, we understand about this, this covenant that happened before ages began. Uh, In Titus chapter one, verse two, in hope eternal, uh, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So it is a, his promises that are within and blessings that are found within this covenant, this ancient eternal covenant. So the love of the father and his plan to redeem his elect is because of his love for his son, which you cannot imagine a stronger love than the father has for the son. But that's what's wrapped up in his plan to redeem us, his people. We see this in Isaiah chapter 42. It's a a bit of a long text here, but I have it on the screen to help as I go along here. It's a beautiful text. This is part of um, a portion in Isaiah where you read the servant songs, the servant songs, servant being Christ. It says, behold, my servant. Speaking of Jesus, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in him whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, 
who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. This is again the Father speaking of the Son. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. That's one of the most amazing uh, texts in scripture that we can read and seeing the plan that God had set forth before the ages began. All three persons, if you notice that in the, in the passage of the Trinity are involved in this, those are the parties to this covenant. And so before we even realize God's special love, the father's love for us, He's already chosen us before we even realize it, before we even been converted. So we therefore are Christ's mission. In this covenant redemption, Christ has a mission. And we are Christ's mission to bring us to full salvation. And he will do it. He will do it. Uh, Christ's mission. It's also found in Isaiah's uh, servant songs. In, in Isaiah chapter 50. Let me go to that text as well. Um, let's read this. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned it not backward. I gave my back to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me, who will declare me guilty. Behold, all of them wear out like garment, like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The Lord will see to it. The Father will see to it. God will see to it that his servant, Christ, our Lord and Savior, will have the help he needs through the Spirit. Indeed, he did. We know this, but again, standing back and breaking it down and looking at this, this beautiful jewel and all the facets that are in this truth, we're able to also understand, wow, that is just another way that God shows his love for his people. Yes, his love is first and foremost in his son, but we are in Christ and so when he sees us, he, he loves us as he loves the son. And so we see that, that special divine working that has been put before us. It's an opportunity for praise. Um, we can see in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, um, some distinguishing terms that refer to the elect of God. Uh, let's take a look at that. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is what Jesus is doing. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, helping him. So these terms, these distinguishing terms in this text that, again, indicate that we are the object of God's love. The poor, that's us. The captives, the blind, those who are oppressed. That's whom God gave to his son as a possession, as a bride, as that work that Christ must fulfill in that covenant and being faithful. Regarding the elect, these are sinners who know themselves to be lost because of their sins. We are sinners who have known themselves to be lost because of our sins. Saved sinners. Saints now, right? It's by the work of the Spirit sent by God. Um, that work of the Spirit in our, in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. Uh, we are made conscious of our wandering from God. And, and even our wandering from holiness. This speaks to the saved sinner's unique characteristic of a consciousness of sin, something an unbeliever will not have, not, not a consciousness of sin that um, eventually brings forth faith. It's, it's just guilt, never, status, never um, paid for. So we, by this work of the Spirit in our lives, we are conscious um, at one time of a lack of faith. And that faith that which leads to holiness. But we have been made anew. And so we're, our consciousnesses are, are renewed and made new. Um, in Hebrews 12, verse 14 it says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without the holiness which no one will see the Lord. You know, this consciousness, we are also aware of our lack of that before we um, become converted. And even as believers, our great need to grow in holiness. But again, that's an indication, once again, of the Father's working through the Spirit that we have and we can know that we are objects of God's love. You know, why is this important, by the way? Why, why is it important that we know that we are the objects of God's love? Anyone want to take a, sh uh, a shot at that one? Well, it's because we are so prone to, to doubt God's love, our Father's love. Question it. We need to be reminded of it. Scriptures replete with remember, remember, remember. 
Jesus was sent for the elect, who were those that came to know that they were sinners. Not those who they believed already to possess a righteousness of their own. Not those who thought that they were already good enough. Those who think that they are good enough. In Matthew 9, verses 12 through 13, it says, But when he heard, of it, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, like the righteous, whom Christ is saying, I came not to call the righteous, uh, those who are whole is another way of describing them at times in Scripture. Those who believe themselves to be whole, they believe themselves to be healthy, they think they're well already. Uh, in fact, they would consider themselves to be an example for others to follow. You know, I'll, I'm sure many of you can have witnessed this in your own lives. I mean, do as I do. You know, don't worry about that stuff. Uh, you're, you're fretting over this stuff. You're, you're being legalistic. You're prudish. Whatever. Just live like I do. They obviously think they are well. They don't see that they are sick and in need of a physician. So I've got a question here. What are some of the dangers of this belief? That is a person believing he is perfectly fine as is in his life lived. Okay. No repentance, therefore no grace um, received. No grace in the repentance given, right? You know, they end up living like those that we read about, those that we're going through in the small group, in judges. They they're do what's right in their own eyes. The person who thinks he is fine just as he is, he's good enough. He lives by that motto, doing what's right in his own eyes. You know, it's, that's why, you know, you don't use a wrench to hammer a nail. You don't use a screwdriver to pull up nails, right? You use the right tool for the right job. As believers, as saints, it just goes to show how improper for us ourselves to sometimes slip into that belief. You know, they believe in their heart that they don't need the great physician, um, let alone even the need for a modest physician. More, Thomas More, he writes in his book, he says, um, they never come to Jesus, therefore his office is not for them. They never come to Jesus, therefore his office is not for them. But on the other hand, those who are sick, these, again, these distinguishing marks, these terms of those who are um, lost and blind and poor, uh, us, those who are sick and made truly conscious of it by the Holy Spirit's electing grace, they know their need of the great physician. 
our need for Christ. And therefore, we come to know that there is no other substitute that will suffice. No other substitute. In fact, a sinner that is made to know this by the Holy Spirit, his need for healing will completely engross his consciousness. You know, there's, it will almost, it will consume him, this need for Christ. This, when the, this, they become awakened to these things. But the same thing goes for the heavy laden, for, you know, how he didn't come for the righteous, but for those who are sick. The same thing goes for the heavy laden. Christ says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Now that's us. That was an invitation that God made for us and that he delivered for us. Now these, like ourselves, uh, for those of us who do believe, we, they toil relentlessly under the burden of guilt. And therefore a piece of consciousness becomes their consuming desire. That is an indicating mark of the Father's love for his people. This burden of guilt that this sinner is going through before he becomes aware of his great need of Christ. Or somewhere in that, you know, the timing of it, who knows. This is precisely the love of the Father for his precious ones at work. And we need to slow down sometimes and step back and and see these things. These are are reasons, once again, to be praising God. You know, we must act on faith given to us by the Holy Spirit and therefore truly believe from the heart. And that means a belief that emanates from the inside out. And bears good fruit. Not just a confession with the mouth, right? So it's the Father who by the Holy Spirit makes a person willing to come to Jesus. To come to Jesus' free offer of grace. Which places special emphasis on us as Christians to be the body of Christ. And extend the gospel offer without qualification. That offer comes from Christ, but from his body. And so we want, we should be a part of this. We should desire to be a part of it. Um, and we won't desire it perfectly. You know, it's, it's part of this sanctified life is, you know, remembering how much we need to come to him every day for the grace and strength needed to live faithfully. In 1 John 3, verse 1 to see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That's a command, that we should see this. It is the Father who, by the Holy Spirit, draws sinners to Jesus. Again, the Godhead at work together and redeeming us. In John 6, verses 44 through 45, it reads, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The Father is teaching us. He makes, he makes certain that we hear and learn and come to Christ. He does this. From, the, from Genesis to Revelation, we see clear indication, explicit indication of those sinners who are the objects of the Father's love. And that's us, brothers and sisters. In every circumstance that remains us. All right, got another question. All right, seeing that we sinners saved by grace are clearly singled out as objects of God's love, how may this encourage you in your faith and evangelism? It's a great encouragement. And, and, yeah, and sharing the gospel. That's a great encouragement. To know what links, and we won't completely comprehend the links, but what God has gone through to, to save the elect, whom it may be that you're sharing the gospel with. Yeah, that's a great encouragement. It's exactly, it isn't in our, uh, our ability. It's in, it's what the spirit does. That's an encouragement. Yeah. We want to grow and be able to answer questions and, and, and know the scripture for ourselves and helping others. That's part of what we're commanded to do as believers in the life of the church. That'll come with it. But when it comes to you know, stepping out and sharing your faith, it's not in our power. It, it never is. It's in the power of the Lord. You know, in, in terms of encouraging our faith, again, singled out as objects of God love, just to know that uh, being reminded of that there is no person in creation that loves like the Father loves. And we have the same love that he has for his son in any and every circumstance. All right. Well, let's go continue. Next chapter to the believer concerning the experimental results of being in Christ. Now, again, this is written in the late 19th century, mid to late 19th century. We wouldn't necessarily write it that way. Um, Experimental, also sometimes talked about in writings in the in that day and age. Experiential, you know, sometimes terms that we shirk back from because we're thinking that uh, 
is there a bit of new ageness in here? Maybe a little um, spirit-filledness, if you will, um, Pentecostalism. But no, no. It's ways that we can know that we are indeed in Christ. That what we experience. Um, the, and the reason why I go through that, even bring that up, is sometimes you're going to read, when you read, if you're reading this book, in fact, and you see these words, that's what it's getting at. Okay? It's, that's what it's getting at. The author, Thomas More, he asks the reader at the beginning of this chapter to focus, to shift focus uh, to the great provision that is made for us in Christ. So we talked about the Father's unique and peculiar love and that we are objects of his love. Now he wants us to shift our focus to the provision that is made for us in Christ. God's work for sinners is all of grace. It's all of grace from beginning to end. He does not provide salvation for us, us needy people, and then require at our own hands certain conditions of action. Just that we believe, repent and believe, which he gives to us. We have to act on it and exercise it, but he doesn't require certain conditions. He knows that we're not going to succeed and be perfect in that. He write, uh, our more, Thomas More writes, he says, salvation is unconditional to the undeserving, unconditionally provided and unconditionally bestowed. So consider this experience felt by the sinner saved by grace. Now, there is a sense of guilt. We talked about this just a second ago. A sense of guilt felt by the sinner that makes him feel that there is no hope. That he is without hope. Sometimes even feeling that he's been cast away from God himself. Um, that they are very aware of their unworthiness. And it is a terrible consciousness to possess. But often it is just God casting them off of themselves. Not them being cast away from God. It's the work of the Spirit, again, showing that mercy, revealing to them their great need of Jesus. That is provision made for us in Christ. That this happens. It's an experience that must not be ignored. It must be not be numbed in any way. Numbed by alcohol, drugs, a licentious life. Whatever it is a sinner can do. To numb that guilt. More writes, be assured that when a soul loses its sense of sinnership and need, it is outside the channel of blessing and grace. So, question. What does he mean by that? What does more mean when he writes that a soul may be outside the channel of blessing and grace when he loses his sense of sinfulness and need? What do you think it means? 
What do you think it doesn't mean? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean um, that we should stop praying for such a person. It doesn't mean that there's no hope still for God to draw the, the sinner. But generally, this person does not or no longer possesses a consciousness of guilt. It is judgment. It should be a terrifying thing. It's kind of, but the thing is, they will never notice it. Because they don't care. They've either numbed it away or they've continued in the path that that free offer, God is no longer extending. And whatever in the providence of God, how that works. Even a true believer can become numb to sin that is being embraced. But a true believer is chastened by his heavenly father and brought back. That's a distinguishing mark. And who among all the saints who's ever lived has not ever been chastened? That is a promise that we will be chastened because we fall. We fear we fall away. We shrink. But what a fearful thing to consider. You know, what if, what if God doesn't chasten the one who professes to believe but continues to embrace their sin? What's that? What's that say? That's a fearful thing to consider. Um, on, slide, on page 40... Moore writes, where there is a soul conscious that it cannot do without Christ, there is also a soul that Christ cannot do without. You know, scripture tells us that all heaven rejoices when a wandering sheep is returned to the fold. There is this great love, this special love that Christ has for Everyone that's in the bride of Christ. That's that possession that Christ prays for. Even in the garden of Gethsemane, right? Whom he suffered for. You know, just like for all Christians. More, he continues, he writes, Christ has done for him already all that is needed for full deliverance from condemnation and he will do all that is needed to bring him safely to heavenly glory. He's already done everything that is needed to make us positionally righteous and reconciled to God. And he will do everything that's needed to bring us to glory. Now, if that's not some cause for some sort of doxology, I don't know what is. Um, he goes on to speak about how a Christian more does, about how a, a Christian in doubt may questions a father love for him. Um, he talks about that one should not judge the love of God based on your shortcomings. And what's he saying there? That that perhaps maybe you would be thinking, 
you know, God only partly loves me somehow because I'm not this or I'm not that. I, I fail in this. Again, the love that we have from God is the love he has for his son because we are in him. Oh, if we could just remember that. Now, God already knew that there's nothing good of you by nature. Which is why he never looked on you as you are in yourself. He doesn't. He made you to be in Christ. That's why we are not our own. We are his possession. He made you to be in Christ. More writes, he says, remember this and take the same view. All the failure cannot take you out of Christ because it is you, Heavenly Father, who put you there himself. Or rather, it is your Heavenly Father who put you there himself. I'm sorry, I wrote that down wrong. And has so made Christ and you one that he loves you as he loves his son. Amen. Just, you know, as we have already discussed, it is Christ's mission to see this through for all who are given to, to him by the Father. And beloved, that's you and that's me. So you are a new creation in Christ. And there's distinguishing marks of this that must appear, though not perfectly. Um, more, he goes on in his in this chapter to explain some of these distinguishing marks, um, marks of sorrows, marks of joys. Um, I'll just read here. He says sorrows, these marks of sorrows, because of spiritual failures, backslidings, unfaithfulness, cold heartedness, lack of a deeper interest in heavenly things. Now he's talking about saints. These sorrows that we carry as saints. A lack of a deeper interest in heavenly things. Sorrow due to the ease with which the mind slides away from even the consideration of spiritual things. To instead busy ourselves with lesser things. Sorrow because of weariness and wandering of thought and prayer. Sorrow from being able, unable it seems to read or meditate on holy things that are more profitable. Sorrow and forgetting what you've learned. Sorrow because the things known have so little influence in the heart and life. These are some of the distinguishing marks of sorrows. Sorrows of a heart which possesses the new life. You know, such things would not burden the unbeliever. These are distinguishing marks. And there are distinguishing joys of the Christian. Uh, joys in that the old things of the former life no longer bring happiness. You may pursue them believing the lie at the time. But there is no joy in that. There's no happiness. There's just sorrow. 
joys in the old, that the old things of the former life no longer bring happiness. Uh, new things of the gospel, truths and promises, you know, principles that we read of, of, of the kingdom of Christ that do bring joy. Even if we poorly seek out these principles in our lives, these are joys that only the believer possesses. The unbeliever is not interested in these at all. We want these for ourselves. We pray and ask God from a sincere heart. We want these things. And yet then we struggle in our sin and do the things that we desire not to do. That flesh and um, spirit contention. So I want to close here on uh, sharing an admonition from Peter, the Apostle Peter, to each of us that are, are being sanctified day in and day out. He writes in Second Peter chapter 1, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter's talking about a believer. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail or never fall. He didn't say if you perfect these qualities. He tells you to practice these qualities. We have homework to do every single day by the strength of, of the Lord. But we have this encouragement that we are the objects of love of our Father. And that we have a special privilege that we need to realize while we are in Christ. Christ.